0: uses the unshakable claims of science as its foundation. Well, Dr. Craig Stephen Wilder, Professor of American History at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, also has taught at Williams College and Dartmouth College, has a brand new book out now, Race, Slavery and the Troubled History of America's University. Ebony and Ivy. Sadly, we're out of time. I just can't believe it. Thank you for joining us. It did go quickly. We are out of time. I'd like to thank our guest, Professor Craig S. Wilder. Today's show was produced by Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank the entire Sojourner Truth team Chris McComb, Sherelle Withers, our engineers, and of course, assistant producer Kevin Walker. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Thank you for listening. Thank you.
1: Portland
0: on 90.7 FM. KBOO is looking for our next membership director. KBOO's members are the heart and soul of our community, and we need a dedicated person to honor and foster this relationship. Are you the right person to steward and manage KBOO's membership department, or do you know someone who is? Go to kboo.fm to learn more about the essential functions of the membership director and the qualifications we are looking for. You can also apply by mailing your resume and cover letter to KBOO Radio, 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, Oregon 97214. Members make KBOO happen. Help us show them how much they do. Celebrating the End of Slavery is coming this Sunday. Moving on, we'll be honoring Juneteenth this Friday, right after the noon news to 1.30. We'll be hearing from Laura Love, Rhiannon Giddens, Odetta, Paul Robeson, and many others. Join host Don Jacobson to celebrate with music the end of slavery and support the struggle to end racism in this country. That's this coming Friday, right after the noon news, only on KBOO. General. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available on our website kboo.fm. Due to the temporary closure of in-station activity at KBOO, Meetings will be conducted online via public video conferencing unless otherwise noted. A public link and phone number to attend the meetings are available on our website. The Governance and Policy Committee meets quarterly on the third Tuesday of March, June, September, and December at 6 p.m. Please visit our website at kboo.fm to verify that a meeting is being held.
1: Every spring and fall, you can hear the collective groan as we manually reset the clocks in our cars and kitchen appliances. But those twice a year time changes may finally become a thing of the past. Back in March, the Senate approved the Sunshine Protection Act, which, if passed, will make daylight savings time permanent. But some sleep experts are taking issue with the bill
2: permanent daylight savings time is going to have some unexpected repercussions that are problematic from a public health standpoint because it's just less aligned with like human circadian biology from virginia humanities this is with good reason
1: i'm sarah mcconnell today sleep as a public health issue later in the show we'll talk about postpartum depression among new mothers but first Marianna Sklow Cox says sleep is a public health issue that impacts almost every aspect of our physical and mental well-being. She's a community and environmental health professor at Old Dominion University.
2: So the connection um, is very strong between sleep and health. It's been shown to be associated with cardiovascular risks, injuries, mental health risks. I mean, practically every dimension of health. Obesity has been associated with sleep disturbances and sleep disorders. So it's really a public health issue. How strong is the
1: connection between sleep and mental health, our mental well
2: being? Very, very strong. So, for example, insomnia has been associated with the risk of new depression. So, um, my colleagues and I actually did a study that we found that in folks who didn't have depression, just having insomnia was associated with the risk of new depression within 4 years even if you adjust for all types of mental health right comorbidities and other types of health comorbidities really really showing that it was really the insomnia right that was a major risk factor for the development of new depression And since then, there have been some really, um, I think, interesting and and well done studies that have looked at if you treat insomnia sometimes, right, you can really address depression because insomnia, you know, as a symptom of of depression also, it tends to be the, the, the one that lasts the longest, the most sort of residual symptom of depression, even after antidepressant treatment.
1: Do we necessarily realize how impaired we are when we're sleep deprived?
2: No. Absolutely not. I um, worked for many years with someone named Dr. Katesby Ware um, at EVMS and he, he had a driving simulator and um, would put folks like resident physicians in the driving simulator and see how they did, you know, after night call and whatnot. And folks feel like they're fine, but their performance metrics and measures show that they're not fine, but they're not cognizant of that. And they can be in areas, for example, like drowsy driving or attentional lapses. So you can't remember, you know, several miles, the last several miles you've driven, but you don't really associate it with insufficient sleep. Um, so yes, I think there is this under recognition and I think there's that bravado, right? I'm fine when I can't and don't sleep. You know, I can do fine.
1: Have there been high profile catastrophes where a lack of sleep was identified as the major factor?
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, there have been many. I think the Challenger space shuttle was one of the biggest ones. It was found that the managers and the folks who were working on this issue, they had slept less than two hours for several sequential nights. Um, Chernobyl, the Three Mile Island, and the Exxon Valdez, it was thought to be the captain was um, asleep you know, and ran aground. But I would say for each of these kind of major catastrophic events, right, there are hundreds and hundreds of near misses that are sort of just nearly averted. So those are really, really concerning to folks right in the, in the, in the sleep field because you, you hear about the really major ones. But all the time, there are all these near miss events, right, that at any moment could be as major as these catastrophes.
1: A few months ago, the Senate approved the Sunshine Protection Act, which would make daylight savings time permanent. It's been praised by many, but you say if passed, it might actually hurt our
2: sleep. How so? Absolutely. You know, I definitely am in agreement with eliminating the seasonal time changes. Daylight savings really um, wreaks havoc with our circadian system. I, I think there's a real fear among sleep folks that it's going to lead to sort of this chronic misalignment of the circadian system. And kind of fixed standard time is best aligned with our circadian biology and really would be best for public health because daylight savings is has been associated with, you know, cardiovascular events and mental health risks and motor vehicle crashes. So we're, we're um, I think, Bracing ourselves for this and, and quite concerned, and hoping there's still time to, you know, be consulted on this and uh, weigh in further.
1: But don't you think the problems associated with daylight savings time come because we're jumping in and out of daylight savings and standard time? That if we simply made standard either standard time or daylight savings time, we wouldn't wreak havoc on our circadian rhythms? True?
2: Well, I would say that not exactly. Uh, I would say that really what it does, daylight savings, is it adds evening light and removes the the morning light. And you kind of need that morning light to set your biological clock. It's sort of a Zeitgeber. It's sort of like jet lag or something, the daylight savings time, like being in a different time zone. So it's, it's not really natural. Um, we don't really adapt to it the way that I think folks believe that we do.
1: If the Sunshine Protection Act is passed and this is the one that would make daylight savings time permanent Mm -hmm. is that still better than hopping on and off daylight savings time would you say no (laughs) (laughs) I don't think
2: so I don't think so no I think that they tried it back in the 70s the Congress enacted the emergency daylight savings time energy Conservation Act and then they they came out with an interim report way back in 1974 and um, decided it wasn't a good idea <laughs> so I am I hope they right can uh, can go back I think that biannual time change I mean it's complicated. I think that that you know it is time to stop that biannual time change, but I think that the permanent daylight savings time is going to have some unexpected repercussions that are problematic from a public health standpoint because it's just less aligned with um like human circadian biology.
1: you're a strong advocate of especially high school students getting to sleep longer in the morning and starting Mm -hmm. school later. Yes. That's a really important thing for them.
2: Absolutely, Um, uh, many, many studies have shown, there's been a lot of research on this in the past, especially, you know, I'd say the past 10 to 15 years that later high school start times really, really help our teens um, in terms of a lot of outcomes, school performance, injuries, Mental health, risk taking, because you know we know that sleep deprivation impairs judgment as well, and we found that just one hour less of sleep in teens was associated with more hopelessness and you know suicidal ideation. So yeah, no, I we you know I feel very strongly, and I think that um, the sleep community has been advocating for this for a long time, and it's also like a you know a sleep um, like equity issue. Because folks right. who are in certain neighborhoods, right, are at the bus stop at 5 a.m. to get on that bus. They don't have other forms of transportation to school. So it's it's really complicated. Do you think Americans are especially
1: bad at valuing a good night's rest? Are we a little more sleep deprived than other nations?
2: Well, you know, I think in this society, culturally, we value, we have this like, you know, work ethic and this kind of puritanical notion, right, of... Uh, Working right as much as possible. Um, my cousin Carla, um, she's a geneticist, and and she moved to um, to the Netherlands, and and she worked in a lab, and she had finished a postdoc at Hopkins. So she was she was used to a culture of you know um, working all the time and being very tired and being sleep deprived. And I think she thought of it as sort of a badge of honor. And she said that she started off in the Netherlands this way. And she would come into work very tired with dark circles under her eyes. And folks would look at her like, what is wrong with her? I mean, it was really like shameful to them. They were not, they would say, you know, go to sleep. Why why are you coming into work like this? Um, This is really, (laughs) this is really not something to be proud of. And she immediately learned that this was not part of the culture. And she had been, you know, At Hopkins for a long time, I don't know if it was maybe five years or longer, where everybody was so proud of her when she was tired and, you know, oh, you're sleep deprived, you must be working so hard. And there and immediately in the Netherlands, they thought, you know, you know, what's wrong? Why don't you have a better work-life balance? And I hope that we as a culture, right, can evolve to where we have the same type of um, view of sleep and um the importance of napping. I'm a big proponent of napping and of being rested and you know sleeping enough and um you know that 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 will be valued, right? Not not considered something that you don't want to discuss.
1: Do you think that this is changing for Americans since the pandemic? It's allowed us to feel what a more
2: relaxed morning and lifestyle might be like. Mhm. Mhm. I hope so. I do hope so. I hope that we've learned some lessons and we don't revert back. Yeah, learning the value of sort of rest and, right, healthy healthy sleep and healthy lifestyle and the importance of light, too. I hope that folks got more light. Maybe if they were home, they had more, right, morning light. And I hope so. I, I don't know. But if it could be sustained in some manner, that would be wonderful. I'd be thrilled. <laughs> I don't know how we keep that in folks' consciousness without reminding them of the traumas, right, of the pandemic. If there would be some good things that could come out of it, that would be great.
1: What do you think would improve our sleep health? Um, should we all be taking naps after lunch during the workday like some countries do? Sure.
2: I mean, I think, I think if you're tired and you're sleepy, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of naps. I think, there, I think there are different kinds of naps. Um, I think if you know you're not going to get a lot of rest... Um, in upcoming days, you can take a uh, kind of a preventive nap that's been shown to be pretty effective, like a prophylactic nap, even ahead of uh, sleep deprivation, ahead of your sleep debt. I think that's that's one option for folks who know they might experience some sleep loss in upcoming days. I think um, if you feel sleepy, because you tend to feel sleepy at lunch, right? Because you're you have that circadian dip where you're tired. I think um, taking a short nap is uh, if you're able to take a short nap, I think that's great, like a 20 to 30 minute nap. I would say give yourself maybe 20 minutes once you wake up um, to kind of fully awaken and not drive anywhere because you can have sleep inertia and that that's not so safe, so you shouldn't wake up and go. So if you're already at the office, you can take a quick nap and then wake up and you don't have to go anywhere. That's, that's perfect. For those who can nap, yes, nap, nap at work. And I think workplaces should have sofas and nap bays. I've heard that you want sleep nooks
1: around yes. Old Dominion University. I, do. <laughs> I, I love that idea.
2: I do. I do. I do. I think that, you know, and I think that it if folks would be more productive, I think that there's still this idea that if you nap, you're sort of lazy, you know. Um, there are all these like old sayings. I don't know if you've heard those, you know, early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. But I do think that we still need, we need, uh, you know naps and for the culture to really recognize the importance of sleep. So I would, I would love to see those darkened places where folks can go and nap. I think it would be so productive because just a 20 minute nap can really improve your sort of, you know, mental acuity for many, many hours beyond that. Um, and your creativity, right? You need sleep for, for um, creative thinking and for memory. And so I think that for some of those kind of brain functions, napping can be really, right? Fantastic. So I would, I would, I would yes, I would love to see it in, 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 in Old Dominion. I would, you know, that would be like my dream, quote <laughs> unquote, uh, not to have a pun right. on words. and Right, and, and
1: also yeah. for those places to be judgment-free zones, you know? <laughs>
2: yes, 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 right. because I still think that there is so much judgment regarding sleep Folks will say to me, I, yeah. "I sleep, you know, ten hours a night. Is that okay?" You know, people and I say, "Yes." I mean, they're long sleepers. Apparently, Einstein was a long sleeper, and uh, it served him well.
1: <laughs> Mariana Skloot Cox is a community and environmental health professor at Old Dominion University. From the endless diapers to the sleepless nights, caring for a newborn is tough work for everybody. Jennifer Payne is a psychiatry and neurobehavioral sciences professor at the University of Virginia. She conducted a worldwide study and found that about 10% of mothers also suffer from postpartum depression. Jennifer, how common is postpartum depression among new moms? I can imagine there are shades of depression following a birth because it can be so overwhelming. But postpartum depression, is that a very specific thing? It is a very specific thing.
3: Postpartum depression is the most common complication of having a child. Um, And most people don't realize it's that common. About 10% of women from the general population will develop postpartum depression. And if a woman has a pre-existing mood disorder like a, a previous history of major depression or another type of mood disorder, the rate is even higher. It's about 40% of women will develop postpartum depression if they have a history.
1: Is it hard to recognize?
3: I think most women are exhausted in the immediate postpartum time period and really trying to do a lot, take care of the baby, take care of themselves. And they may not easily recognize that they are suffering from depression. Also, a lot of people really kind of dismiss their feelings uh, during that postpartum time period because they know it's hard to have a new baby. And so they just kind of shove their feelings aside and say, oh, I'll get better in a few weeks. But then over time, when they don't get better, they may slowly
1: recognize that they've developed a postpartum depression. How does it manifest itself? What does it look like? What does it feel like to the woman? What can people who love or care for the women see?
3: Well, it's funny, most women with postpartum depression also have significant amounts of anxiety. Um, And so what will happen is she will be worrying excessively about the baby. So many women uh, with postpartum depression will, for example, not be able to sleep when the baby is sleeping because they'll be worried that the baby is going to stop breathing and they'll kind of hover over the baby while uh, the baby is sleeping. Um, They also may become um, excessively concerned about germs, either from other people or in the environment. Um, So anxiety is a really uh, big symptom of postpartum depression. But aside from that, uh, most people with postpartum depression have what looks like a, a regular major depressive episode. So they'll be excessively tired. They may have difficulty sleeping. They may feel that they're having a hard time getting out of bed. And a key uh, symptom of depression is really not enjoying things. So this is part of what I think makes it hard for women. They may recognize that they're not bonding with the baby in the way that they should. They feel guilty. And so they don't think about it further. They don't want to admit that they're having a hard time enjoying this time period.
1: Can dads
3: get it? So actually, there's some really interesting work being done right now on uh, postpartum depression and dads. And absolutely, dads can get depressed in the postpartum time period. Now, we think that that is primarily due to the stress of the postpartum time period, because dads don't go through some of the same hormonal changes that women do when they deliver a baby. But absolutely, dads can get depressed as well.
1: I've read about people saying, I feel guilty about this, but I don't feel a bond with my baby that's supposed to be so maternal and and natural and instinctive. But is not feeling a bond with a baby necessarily postpartum depression?
3: Um, no, but it can be. I mean, the reality is right. the postpartum time period is difficult. I, I remember when my first child was born, thinking, "Oh my goodness, what have I gotten myself into? I don't know what I'm yes, doing." Right. <laughs> um, and uh, it, you know, it's it's a tough time, and many women think that there will be a, kind of a magical experience of bonding with their baby, and you know, most bondings don't live up to that magical idea. So it it may not be postpartum depression, but if if a woman is seriously feeling that she is not bonding with the baby, she should consider whether or not she's having a postpartum depression because that's a very common symptom of postpartum depression.
1: I was like you. I remember with the first baby being so surprised, maybe even shocked by how much there was to it, how hard it was, how sleepless you were. When my sister called me a few weeks in from long distance and said, how are you? I just started sobbing and said, I feel like my life is over and I'm now devoted to this little person. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) But I wouldn't have said that was depression. I was just overwhelmed. Right. And, um, you know,
3: nobody really tells you how hard it's going to be. And so particularly for first-time moms, it can be a very overwhelming time. When I do a clinical interview, I'm, I'm looking for a pattern Of symptoms that hang together and don't seem to abate easily right and so that pattern of symptoms is low mood you know with crying spells feeling overwhelmed etc but also changes in sleep appetite energy suicidal thoughts I will say are always abnormal and you know would be considered part of a depressive episode and I'd be looking particularly for not really being able to enjoy anything that a woman uh, has previously enjoyed. So women who are having a hard time will still enjoy their favorite TV program, will still enjoy a good meal, will luxuriate in a shower. um, And, (laughs) you know, those types of enjoyment of everyday activities, that goes away when someone is,
1: is depressed. I am surprised to learn from your research that most women with postpartum depression are not diagnosed and not treated.
3: That's right. One of the things that I found out recently that I thought was really interesting, you know, postpartum depression, as I've said, is the most common complication of childbirth. And yet maybe 40% of women are screened for postpartum depression. And in contrast... Gestational diabetes occurs in about 6% of all pregnancies, and we have a 99% screening rate for gestational diabetes. And so we can do better than that and we should be doing better than that because postpartum depression is not just bad for the mother. It's bad for the developing infants as well. So when moms are depressed postpartum, they don't talk to their infants in the same way. They don't stimulate their infants in the same way. And multiple studies have shown that if mom remains depressed for a long enough period that can have effects on the developing baby's IQ and language development.
1: Can you treat postpartum depression, though? Oh, absolutely. And
3: like most depressions, we usually recommend a combination of medication and therapy because that's been shown to be the most effective. There's also a a new medication uh, that was approved by the FDA in 2019 that requires a hospital stay and infusion for severe cases.
1: But postpartum depression is absolutely treatable. So for women getting postpartum depression, what do we think causes it? What triggers it and how soon does it begin? So those are great questions. And of course, it's a complicated
3: answer. We think that postpartum depression that begins in the immediate postpartum time period within the first few weeks after giving birth likely has a biological trigger from the hormonal changes that women go through at the time of delivery. And there have been multiple studies that have shown that early postpartum depression has a genetic basis and runs in families and can be triggered by hormonal changes. That being said, we also know that there are a lot of um, other environmental type influences on postpartum depression. So having a lot of stress in one's life, like financial issues or marital discord or not having a partner are all associated with an increased risk of postpartum depression. Having a traumatic birth experience is another risk factor. So we know that environmental stressors can um, also contribute to the risk for postpartum depression.
1: Do you think we'll ever find a way to actually prevent postpartum depression? Or would we just better be able to treat symptoms? I think we're
3: going to find a way to prevent postpartum depression. So some of my work has found um, some, what we call biomarkers of postpartum depression so that I can take blood from women uh, while they're pregnant and predict with about 80% accuracy who's at high risk. And we're going to be moving in the future into studies where we try to do various interventions including medication to prevent onset in women who have these biomarkers.
1: You participated in a very large study, a worldwide study of, I think, a million women to look at some of the more universal aspects that would indicate postpartum depression.
3: That's right. I partnered um, with a mobile phone app called Flow Health. Flow Health tracks menstrual cycles and pregnancies and one of the things that they do as part of the app is send a, essentially a mental health survey to women after they have delivered the baby. So we were able to look at over a million pregnancies in 138 countries of women who had answered this survey. And one of the neat things about the study is that everybody that participated was asked the same questions. We counted three of the answers that Uh, women gave as counting for postpartum depression symptoms. One of the answers was, I can feel nothing at all. Uh, One of the other answers was, I feel down and sad. And uh, a third answer described really anxiety symptoms. And worldwide, um, the average postpartum depression rate was 10%. Some of the factors that we found that were associated with higher rates of postpartum depression symptoms included being a first-time mom, being a young mom, and having twins. Um, All of those were associated with higher rates of postpartum depression symptoms. The group that we found that had the highest rate, though, were moms who were over 40 and who had twins. And I thought that was interesting. I can imagine... um, you know, getting to age 40 uh, and then suddenly becoming a mother
1: of twins is a significant risk factor. Is there anything that we can do, whether we're the partner of someone about to give birth or a woman about to give birth, that might ease the likelihood that our loved ones would go into postpartum depression?
3: Sure, so first of all, I I think if you're a pregnant woman and you're not being screened, you should ask to be screened and talk about it with your doctor. I think the more doctors become aware that they should be screening, the better. Secondly, I think families need to think very carefully about how to best support women who are in the postpartum time period. And that includes protecting their sleep, making sure they're eating and making sure they're not overwhelmed. And then finally, if if a loved one is really concerned that a mom, a new mom is depressed, then um, they need to be supportive and help them go get treatment. It is difficult sometimes to initiate treatment when you're depressed.